It was the pioneering American environmentalist John Muir who first said it. Of all the paths that you take in life, make sure a few of them are dirt. It's a motto that music producer, photographer and motorcycle tourer Simon Lister has enthusiastically put into practice. But what he discovered, who he discovered, while he was travelling those paths, has transformed his perspective. It all started when he pointed his camera at a smiling child in a poor country and triggered the shutter. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, it's fantastic to have you with us this week on Signs of the Times Radio. We have a great guest with us this week, Simon Lister, who runs a music recording studio in Sydney and also elsewhere around the, the world. He's also a photographer who helps at UNICEF with his incredible portraits of children. Hey, thanks so much, Simon, for joining Hi. us. Thanks very much for inviting me to the show. This is awesome. Yeah. Oh, it is good. Look, Daniel Kubrick, he, he met you uh, last year at, at a conference and heard you speak and saw your photos and he's a bit of a keen photographer and he was just an instant fanboy, like, you know, wanted to meet you, wanted to know about your photos. And I, I know there's a lot of enthusiasm out there for, for what you do. So yeah, we, we're really excited to, to have you here. But look, first of all, your, your accent tells me that you're from New Zealand originally. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'm a Kiwi born and um, I grew up on a, a farm in the Waikato. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think, you know, with my, my parents, especially my father, he kind of influenced me quite a lot on, on my journey. He loved music, he loved photography, mm-hmm. and he loved motorbikes. So I'm kind of doing all that now and in really sort of epic, fun ways. Yeah, so, I'm, yeah. I'm having trouble picturing that because, you know, I mean, what sort of farm was it? A dairy or what? It was a little bit of everything. We we did we had goats on there. We had yep. cows. We had chickens. We had mum and dad. We used to get up early in the morning and, and feed like two hundred cows before they went to work. Wow! So it was, it was a very well utilised farm. It was, a, it was actually an amazing upbringing. Being having that sort of opportunity to 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 grow up on a farm and just sort of experience that that way of life. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it also gave me opportunity to. You know, obviously ride a motorbike when I was like 11 years old around the paddock yep. and sort of enjoy that and I guess get quite good on a motorbike yeah. early on. Yeah, my, my, my dad loved music, so he, he used to play jazz a lot and all sorts of music and that really um, brought me into the love of music, you know, played the piano and things like that. And then at the end of sort of school, I wanted to be a cameraman. My dad had a, a nice camera as well and I would borrow that and go and take photographs. So I, yeah. I kind of like visuals and I like sound. At the time I was trying to get a job in with TV in um, New Zealand at the mm. time but there was no positions available. So they said, oh look, you know, why don't, why, why you're waiting, why don't you go and there's a job going at Radio New Zealand and Broadcasting House and they're looking at people there. So I went, went and had an interview and, and got that job and that was amazing training for me. I was very very young at this stage, only sort of 19 years old. And I got to learn how to record voices, put together programs, work for the, work for the sports section, the, on the, the sort of the, the main sort of good morning New Zealand news in the morning and all that. So I got an amazing training with, with sound and, and music at that time. And I was there for about a year and a half. And then 
after that, I got, well, not after that, but while I was working there, I got an opportunity to go for an interview at Marmalade Recording Studios. Okay. And in those days, Marmalade Recording Studios, which is sort of the sort of the late 80s was recognized as one of the main music studios for for new zealand and mm. we've got some amazing artists that came through there we had you know annie crummer we had the herbs we had you know, it was dave dobbin the neverworld dancing toys all these famous new zealand bands back in those days yeah, yeah. so i was immersed in that culture in that recording studio environment and from there i just learned and all sorts of elements about music and sound and, and, and post-production i was their kind of their commercials engineers so we used to have advertising agencies come in and i'll do their soundtracks and work with composers as well putting their music together for for the commercials and then do all the broadcast mixing so i was kind of immersed quite young putting together a um, soundtrack for TV commercials and film and, and just really managed to, especially in New Zealand, you get to learn to do a bit of everything. I would sometimes go out and record the the sound of the of the dialogue at, at the film shoot. I'll come back. I would um, do all the sound effects track laying. I would sometimes compose the music as well and do the broadcast mix. So I do basically everything that was involved with, with the soundtrack. <laughs> uh, you, you're right. That is a very New Zealand story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I can farm. I can ride a motorbike. Um, because in New Zealand, there is that sort of, hey, you know, we can do it. We can do anything. You know, just give it a give it a go I, yeah I can certainly right. see that in your story yeah yeah and it, it just it's just real fun you know I was really lucky in those days where one of the advertising agencies was Saatchi's and Saatchi's and in, in those yep. days they were recognized as one of the best in the world for the work that they were doing and I was their engineer doing all the sound on their tv ads that were winning sort of awards around the world so I was immersed in all that culture and then I, basically I met I was there for about six years and then met my wife, Amanda, and mm. she was in Auckland. So I would, or we would travel every weekend to the halfway point in Lake Taupo. I was in, I was in Wellington at that stage. She yeah. was in Auckland. We'd, we'd drive and meet for six months every weekend, basically, and see each other up in Lake Taupo. And then we were married nine months after we, we met. And we've been married for 23 years now. Wow, there you go. And, and you're running your own business now. Is, is, that, is that right? That's correct. So I was brought to Australia by a company, a recording studio. While I was there, I managed to get the opportunity to set up my own shop, and that's um, Nylon Studios here mm-hmm. in Sydney. Yeah. And about seven years after we opened, we opened in New York City. And we've got new studios now, which has been open for almost a year in Melbourne. So we've got three studios. Man, that, that must keep you busy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We're going for 17 years here in Sydney and we work every day on New York jobs and also Melbourne jobs. So we're constantly throwing the work between all the offices and yeah, it keeps us very busy. We're doing between sort of 60 and 80 campaigns a month just Man. in Australia. That, that, and, that, that, um, must, that must be tough, like t- tough on you, you know, psychologically, spiritually, like tough on your family to sort of keep up that level of that level of work or all that juggling. I've been doing this for, you know, for 32 years now for what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. That's... You, you, you sort of get a rhythm, I guess. I get a rhythm. It's my nine to six job. Basically, clients book the rooms to come in for a few hours. And then I guess with that, you get to have a lot of people in the industry 
that I work with every day sort of become your friends and also you get to understand who they are. They become amazing uh, amazing creatives, film directors, all sorts of people from all walks mm. of the industry. And about four years ago, one a main creative person here, one of the advertising agencies um, saw my work and, and showed it to the guys at UNICEF in New York. Right. At, at the time, they, they were looking at for somebody to help them with their new brand campaign. So they haven't rebranded for about 14 years and they were looking at rebranding and they wanted somebody to basically go around the world, take a whole lot of photographs for them and also film their TV commercial, right. um, which they brought me on to do. And and this sort of fits into something that you had started doing a little bit before that, doesn't it, which is motorcycle touring. I mean, I guess you you must have found a, a gap in, in all that busyness to actually like get out there, travel, get the bike out and and off, off the beaten track. How did, how did that start? That was basically because I love, love motorbikes and because I love photography, I wanted to kind of join the two together. Mm. And the, a few people inspired me. One was the Ewan McGregor, Charlie Borman adventures they did on their motorbikes. I wondered about God. that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A long way around. Yep. And I thought, oh, how cool is this? And they were just having so much fun and I was watching the, the series and that kind of made me think, man, I can ride a motorbike and these guys are going to really unique, interesting landscapes mm-hmm. and, and countries. So I, I just started to think, wow, why don't I give that a go? My business was going okay at that stage where I could literally probably go away for a couple of weeks and, and then the business would keep going. No problem about me there. Mm. So I thought, why don't I do a trip for myself and sort of see how that goes because of the passion of, of motorbikes. And also Steve McCurry, I, I used to love his photographs. So I would look through all his photographs and I saw some photographs there in one of his books of some um, shots and portraits of, of people in, in Rajasthan, India. Mm-hmm. So It's sort of a, a desert province, isn't it? It's kind of a, a triangle in, in, in India and in the middle you've got the Tar Desert. Mm. So I thought to myself, why don't I try and find a, a, a motorbike tour company or some way of riding a motorbike in Rajasthan where the photos were of Stephen Curry. Yep, <laughs> Why yep. not plant myself right into those places, you know? So I did some research on the internet and came across a tour company that, that basically you put on a Royal Enfield and you can go. Oh, yeah, one, one of those silver bullets, those are old vintage sort of UK style, yeah? That's right, yes. So this is a 500cc bullets. Yep. They're not very powerful, but it's more about the, the classic kind of ride that you go on, on with them. They're, they're just such a, a beautiful old machine. Yeah, and I think they actually have kept making them with the original sort of factory parts have kept churning those. It's like a, what, a 1940s, 1950s sort of style bike and they've just kept yes. pumping them out um, consistently up, up till quite recently. So it's like a, a vintage looking bike, but it's actually relatively new. So yeah, that's, It's modern, yeah. Yeah, yeah you can uh, buy them new and they, they look old though, but they they got really much better mechanics on them. No, okay. So yeah. I decided to do a trip in Rajasthan, India, paid my deposit, have no idea what I was about to get myself into. Mm-hmm. And my brother wanted to go with me as well. All right. So just the two of you? Or did you, you go with a larger group? Two of us. Yeah, the yeah. two of us went and we had a guide and the guide took his father. So it was like a father-son team. Mm-hmm. And then we had a support vehicle which carried all our luggage in there. 
and obviously safety gear for the for the bikes and mm. and for ourselves as well, like some oxygen and things. Oh, sorry, the oxygen was for the second trip. Yeah. But the Rajasthan was amazing. We we just it was incredible life experience being immersed into a culture that is so different to your own. Mm. Everything you smell. You see, you hear, it's like I keep saying to people, it's an explosion of all the senses mm-hmm. in every way. Having that experience going around Rajasthan just opened my eyes and obviously took photographs and still to this day, some of my favorite photographs are some of those first ones that I took mm-hmm. on that Rajasthan trip. Oh, I, I bet. And and is it the case in India, as it is in a lot of developing countries in particular, that the kids in particular will, you know, pretty much, you know, ham it up for the, as soon as they see someone pull out a camera, they'll sort of j- jump in front of it, whether you're actually wanting to take a picture of them or, or not. Did you, exactly. Yeah, they you saw that from the very beginning. photograph taken. Yeah, yeah. And I think with digital photography now is where you can show them the photo mm. on the back of the camera, they get so excited, then all their friends want their photos done as well. So you're kind of immersed into that perfect situation if you want to get into doing portrait photography yeah. is to go to India because they want their photo taken and you can have fun with them while you do it and, and get some amazing colours and results um, with the photographs. No, yeah, that's, so, that sounds believe, uh, unbelievable. I mean, it must be interesting though, sort of mixing, you know, dust and, and dirt roads and, and desert and then with like pristine you know photographic equipment is is that a, a technical challenge sometimes I travel with a very light camera setup, literally just a body and, and one lens, mm. to be honest. I don't have flash or tripods. I don't take any of the extra stuff that I have to carry. Yeah, yeah. It's, it usually sits on a, in, a, in a backpack and that's all ready to go if I need to stop and actually grab, grab the camera out quick to take a photograph. Okay. The, yeah, ex- um, the experience I, I, in Rajasthan just blew my mind. Yeah. And, and after that, I said to the guys, I said, look, this is great. You know, what, what's your favorite tour that you guys do, you know, in India? And they go, by far, the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. So we, I say Himalayas as a, as a Kiwi, but <laughs> the Himalayas, it was really exciting when they go. And I said, well, count me in, put my name down for next year. And my brother and I did that trip as well. Right. And that was more of the dirt roads. Rajasthan was all tar sealed around from city to city. And you're basically dealing with really extreme traffic conditions mm-hmm. and dealing with, you know, elephants on the road, camels on the road. You got funerals on the road. You got people in trucks walking towards you in the wrong direction on the roads, all that sort of stuff. So that side of it was was really challenging but really exciting as well to be be in that you know I love I love sort of chaos yeah it's kind of fun chaos yeah yeah it's the stuff that you see that you just can't believe is happening in front of you all the time mm-hmm. and that's what kind of made that journey so unique because the culture is so different to to what we're used to you know oh, yeah, I yeah. can't stop on the side of the road here and start taking photographs of people that, <laughs> that wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't be happy at all so I don't know do locally what what was it that actually brought your photos to UNICEF's attention I mean out, out of all the you know sort of traveling people with with cameras how how did you and them manage to cross paths? Well, I, I spent literally 10 years. Every year I, I told myself I wanted to go on an amazing, epic sort of motorcycle journey. I did the Sahara, the Baja, Mexico, North Thailand, did Mongolia, Vietnam. So lots of lots of different cultures and, and places. And I took 
a lot of photographs in that time. Yeah. I also got an opportunity to go to Bangladesh. And while I was at Bangladesh, I took a lot of photos and film. Mm. We made a little short film here in, in Australia for the ABC. And that film with my photographs was shown by an advertising creative here in Australia to some people that he knew at UNICEF and head office in New York. Right. At the time, they were looking at for somebody to, to basically help rebrand UNICEF globally. And that's through photography and for film. So I was brought on literally to create a 90-second TV commercial, mm-hmm. which is filming in five regions around the world. And while I was on that trip, I took about 1,400 photographs for them to use on all their sort of social ma- media, posters, billboards, whatever the brand needed them for. Wow. And that was an incredible journey. We went to Kyrgyzstan, Vietnam, Ethiopia, Lebanon, and Mexico mm. over about five weeks of travel. I had no crew. I was literally just filming and photographing and doing drone and doing a bit of everything myself. And then we brought that back. We edited it here in Australia and we did the soundtrack at Nylon Studios. So that was that was really, really cool opportunity. And wow. that's kind of how the, the yeah. relationship sort of started and, and we've been working on projects since. Yeah, so this is, this is Simon Lister, one man, the one-man band, eh? the one-stop shop. <laughs> <laughs> man, that's, that's incredible. We actually um, have a 5D here at work and I'm a pretty average photographer. I mean, I've, but we do, we have a 5D here, so I just switch it onto auto mode. I'm one of the people you love to hate, you know. <laughs> why, no, why, no, why, no. why, why waste such a, a nice camera on on someone who only knows how to shoot in auto mode but that's me and I've been surprised at how often the portraits have come up really nice you know just so long as you yeah. ha- have the light in in the right place so wh- what sort of crash course could you give me or or other sort of photography noobs out there who are you know would, would like to take some better better portraits of even if it's just family friends or, or, or whatever Look, I can probably only sort of speak for, for the subject that I kind of are into, which is at this stage, children mm-hmm. and, and people. So for, for me, I love using natural light and mm-hmm. there's, there's no rhyme, rhyme or, or you know reason to, to do whatever you want to capture what you feel in your heart is something that you, you, you want to capture and, mm-hmm. and display for yourself. So for me, I, I love doing portrait photography. So I, I, I love using prime lenses which, which means what for the uninitiated? Prime lens is a, is a fixed focal lens. So instead of having a zoom that goes from 24 to 105 or something, oh, right. I just have a set focal length of usually around about 25 or 35. Right. 30, 35 is with the, with the Canon 5D, and that's what I used for the Tales by Light series. I just okay. used one lens. And the reason why I use the 35 is because it's, it's razor sharp. It's one of their mm-hmm. sharpest lenses to use. And also having a, a prime lens or a fixed focal lens, you have got a, a bigger glass to work with and you can also have a, uh, a lower aperture number so you can really yeah, you go can, You can catch more light, light that way, yeah. Okay, yeah. so if, if, if you want to zoom in, you just take a step forward. <laughs> is, is that how it works? Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like challenging myself in that sort of situation as well. I, I, the 35, you can get a good landscape and get enough wide to get in um, mm. more in your image. And with me, with, with doing portrait photography, is I'm starting to now want to take a step back and include more of layers in my, in my story. Mm-hmm. It's not just the eyeball or the face. It's actually, okay, where are they? Are they yeah, at, at yeah. the hut or are they up on a mountain or where are they? So 
putting a bit more sort of visual context of, of landscape yeah, yeah. or their environment. Because it helps around. tell the story, doesn't it? Yes, it helps yeah. tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that I'm trying to teach myself more that because I do love getting close into the face because I feel mm. that also faces tell, can tell so much stories as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the places where I've been to and the, the children I've met, they've, they've all got some really deep yeah, stories yeah. there. Now, the the focus of, of UNICEF and like the, the reason why they wanted you to get out there in particular was to document these situations of child labour. You know, you, you wouldn't think that, you know, here in the in the 21st century, there are still places where, you know, kids, what, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, or, you know, younger, are actually working in factories, missing out on school. But you are out there actually capturing the reality of that, but also capturing some of the, the positive programs UNICEF is, is putting into place. Yeah, and we wanted to show what, you know, a lot of countries go through and, and a lot of children go through as well. So, you know, we had stories of, of of kids working in in mines in in Bolivia, mm. you know. So this this is it's quite full on because the government while we were there brought the working age down to ten, the minimum Ooh, age. Wow! So ten years old, and what what situation we were finding was that parents were basically going, "Why send your child to school to learn when at the end of the day they're just going to be working in the mine anyway? So you mm. might as well put them in the mine now, straight off, and they're, wow. they're learning that that." that school from an early age so they can work down there but it's it's a, a very big issue down there it's it's, it's full on so people people need to work to survive and mm, sometimes this mm. is the only work they can do wow. so so you and actually follow these kids down the mine and actually like took photos of them like in in there like by the the lights of their mining lamps we didn't mention everything that was in the story um yeah, yeah. On, on the film for the show but the reason why some of these families have to go and work in there because the conditions are so harsh and so full on that the the fathers and the men that go down there, the situation is so dire for them that they literally turn to alcohol. So what what would happen is that the the men would become alcoholics and the family wouldn't have the money, so the family would have to go into the mine to earn something so they can they can feed uh, or feed themselves. You know, so that was this situation that we were involved with there in our story for the for the Bolivia one. Man. And yes, you got ten year olds working in the mine there with pickaxes. We went in about a couple hundred meters in there and it was claustrophobic. You could hardly breathe. Every footstep you took or every step you took created a dust that would come up and then go into your lungs. And the noise was just horrendous. We had all these pipes coming through the mine shafts that were carrying compressed air that goes down to the machines into the ground, you know, deep into the mountain, yeah. which is compressors for their all their um, jackhammers and things to work into the into the mountain. So we were in there, we were, we were choking. It was, it was very claustrophobic. You know, when you get caught in a rip, how you panic, your body panics. Mm-hmm. We, we've yeah, had a, probably yeah. a similar situation here where very confined space, it was very dangerous. There's 15,000 people working in this mine at any one time and the tree's been going for three to 400 years. The mine used to supply the whole Spanish coin, the silver coin, way back three to 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. And on Wikipedia, if you look it up, it's, it's Potosi, it's the Cerro Rico mines. They claim that they think that there's about 10 million people have died in these mines over these 400 years man you know people often ask the question you know how could uh, you know a loving god uh, allow suffering and i guess you would have been confronted by the the reality of of that question there how how do you deal with that like emotionally or or spiritually how how do you make sense of it 
I've, I've witnessed a lot of uh, heartbreaking stuff. Even the, some of the stories in Bangladesh, there, some of those, with those children there was, you know, you, you're crying all the time, you know. And I think I've, I've been blessed in a way where God's given me the gift of photography and being able to go in and capture these stories and mm. capture these moments to, to show the rest of the world and then create a, a conversation you know, mm. for oneself to to look for anybody who looks at this stuff can then, you know, be emotionally challenged and affected and, and hopefully want to give and help more, you know. So for, for me, I, I've got a hundred stories I can tell you yeah, of yeah. where, you know, it, it, it breaks the heart. What, I, what, I, what I, I do love going into these places because I want to witness myself, but also allow witness to everybody else who sees the, the film and photographs. But also with, with children, it's amazing that in any environment, in any place they've been brought up in, they do have a joy the mining kids, that's probably a different story. It was, it was quite depressing and, and quite sad. Yeah, yeah. But I guess in other environments like Bangladesh and other places we visited, you know, the, the, the kids do find a way to have joy mm. even in their hardship. And that was that was a beautiful thing to, to witness and be part of, you know, and, yeah. and, and be with them and, and have have fun with them, you know, in, in a short amount of time. But we go in there thinking, you know, we've got high school degrees, we've got a beautiful house, we drive around in a car and all that sort of stuff. They don't have that. For them, it's not about how big your house is or what car you drive. It's literally about um, community yeah. and the people around them and family. And that's why I love going into these places because it's not it's not about the the things that you own. It's it's about love, yeah. and I, I love that where I can go into. I mean, one story was in India, I went to Pune, into a slum, mm. and and a woman came up to me. We, she she couldn't speak you know, obviously English at all, but she invited me back literally into her cardboard box and she's, we sat down together and she made me try. And it's just that beautiful moment together where we couldn't, you know, speak English. I mean, she couldn't speak English, we couldn't communicate, but we communicated via literally love and sharing. And that that's what I, I love about going to these places. It's, it's, about, it's about humanity, it's about love, it's about the friendship, and, and and that part of, of my travel and what I do as a wow, photographer. Yeah. So there's there is incredible suffering there, but there's in, incredible beauty too. Yeah, that, that that is incredible. I guess you know we we can you know jump on Netflix and check out the you know Tales by Light episode that features you, which is you know really interesting, great you know beautiful pictures. But what can we actually do? Like us us who are listening to uh, Signs of the Times Radio when it comes to child labour, when it comes to these issues, what what are some practical things that we can actually do to you know, improve the situation just just while we finish go to unicef.org there is a donate button there if you want to get involved and, and also the, these donations can go to certain projects that, that you can be part of as well and, and see change it's it's literally also awareness as well just being aware of what is going on out there and then you know committing yourself and wanting to help in whatever way you can, whether that's with money or it's with something that you have creatively for yourself or it's, maybe it's a journey that you want to take as being a, a nurse or a doctor to go into some of these regions and, and work on the, on, the, on the field, you know, as well. Mm-hmm, yeah, and I understand there are a number of campaigns to sort of help people to recognise, uh, you know, particular products or brands that, you know, that avoid using child labour or avoid using slave labour and, and that sort of stuff. And I guess it's good to increase your awareness of that sort of thing too, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And like, especially with Bangladesh, there's so much industry comes out of there for the everyday items that we buy every day. And, you know, with the story we did on the on the balloon factory, we've got little children making making balloons, you know, in this sort of acid environment. It's like, it's so, uh, it's just crazy. You know, you, balloons are a symbol of, of, of joy and laughter and, and parties. Mm-hmm. You've got little children making this in, in, the, in the most terrible conditions, you know. So I think it's just being aware of everything we buy and everything that we, you know, clothing or companies that we, you know, just just make sure that they, they, they all feed back to making sure that the, the original place where that comes from or the people or the factories that it comes from, that those people are getting paid fairly and mm-hmm. that's that's really important it's it's not us keep buying things because it's making a, a big organization be greedy and and you know not paying the original supply in the correct way it's, yeah, it's I, think yeah. it's, I think it's important you know people deserve to be paid a, a normal or a good good wage and salary for for the work they do and a lot of these countries work really, really hard, and they don't get paid very, very much. And yeah. it's and that that needs to be changed by awareness. You know, we we managed to get my photographs up onto Times Square billboards. You know, it's just it's just people seeing that and then going, oh my gosh, I did not realise this happens. And I'm getting messages every day. I get about 50 messages a day through Instagram, basically saying, what can we do to help? You know, I didn't realise this was happening. You know, thank you for making this um, aware, aware to me. You know, or making this understanding for me to to see this going on you know i'm now telling my children we're now showing your show in the school so it's mm. it's all coming together it's all all going along the, the the path for the future of of doing the right things you know morally oh that's fantastic simon so yeah look if our listeners out there want, want to know more um you know check out you know google simon lister and you know check out those historian their photos do you have a particular website where this stuff is uh, yes where a lot of um, this content is simonlisterphotography.com There you go, check that out and of course you can also check out uh, the article in the March edition of Signs of the Times magazine where we have a couple of photos that Simon has generously uh, allowed us to use for, for that story Hey, thanks so much Simon, really appreciate your time and yeah, thanks so much for sharing your story Yeah, thanks so much for in- including me into your, into your story and your podcast Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit scienceofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 